Necessity is the mother of invention So get ready for a mother of a ride Gas up your laptops, your tablets and devices Cause our asses are all quarantined inside More and more every day The world just feels so very far away Less and less things to do So pull up a chair and let us talk to you I'm Summer. I'm Andrea. She teaches English. She's a historian. And this is the More and More Everyday Podcast. A daily blog and interview series to capture and preserve the stories of students and teachers in a world on the brink of change. 2020, the year of COVID-19, quarantine, and social change. Brought to you by the South Phoenix Oral History Project at South Mountain Community College. Today's interview is a conversation between myself and Dennis Kibbe, who's a professor of computer information systems at Mesa Community College. Dennis, who has a lot of experience teaching about and with technology, has a lot of really useful and positive suggestions for those of us who are looking to learn how to teach online and how to do it well. This conversation took place in spring of 2020, Back when Dennis and I were both kind of navigating a new world of primarily teaching online due to the outbreak of COVID-19. Hi, Dennis. How are you? Doing good. You? Oh, I'm great. Thank you. I'm so excited that you're able to spend some time with me today. Yes. All right, let's get into it. So the first thing I want to do, Dennis, is I want to just start with an introduction. Um, tell us your name. You can use just your first name if you prefer or your full name, your expertise, and where you teach. So my name is Dennis Kibbe, and I teach in the computer information system. It's now a separate department we've divorced off from the business side of things. But we're still chummy, though. Yes. And uh, my areas of expertise are Red Hat Enterprise Linux, so this is all IT stuff, uh, the new blockchain curriculum, and uh, the new uh, cloud computing curriculum. Uh, we're a Red Hat Academy, so that affords our students uh, discounts on the industry certifications, uh, well-written curriculum directly from Red Hat, and we get the same thing from Amazon Web Services for the cloud computing. Wow. And you're at Mesa Community College? I teach at Mesa Community College, Southern and Dobson, also at the new MITI Center in downtown Mesa. Wonderful. Thank you. So were most of your students already online when this happened? For my, uh, certainly for my Linux students, my IT students, yes, they were already online. uh, And uh, I can remember uh, talking one student the first day in class, he said, well, I I work for Honeywell Aerospace, and I've only seen my boss in person t- two times in the last three years. So <laughs> some students are very adapt to it. Uh, yeah. It is a different environment, um, and uh, it's important to make sure that students know uh, where the resources are uh, and how to get the things. Uh, so you really need to, to be well organized and have things laid out because it's not the same as an in-class environment. Previously, I've required my students to be in class for the first day of class. We could go over the mechanics of the class and be required to be in the class the last day for the final. Obviously, that's not happening now. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, thank you. So the very, very first question is, how are you? How are you doing and how are you adjusting to this new lifestyle? Well, I'm actually doing quite well. Uh, I live about a half mile from the Mason and Dobson campus uh, and uh, doing quite well. No real problems. Good. What have been some highs and lows of the last few weeks as you're learning to work from home? I think it just, um, it's nice to be a get, get out of the house occasionally, uh, go for a walk. Um, and uh, that's been the main thing, because uh, I tend to work too much on the computer anyways, so really need to, to get out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I haven't been ordering as much on Amazon either. <laughs> yeah, we noticed that too. We're like, we're not spending as much money. <laughs> right. It's kind of nice. My students and I are really interested in this one particular question, and that is about the watershed moment. So you might know historians tend to track change over time. We look at trends, but we also look at watershed moments. So everything was this way, and then something happened, and now everything is different. My students and I are curious on almost a microcosmic scale for each of the people we interview. Can you pinpoint an actual day where it felt like, everything changed for you? I think I can. And that would have been, uh, I think, Friday a couple weeks ago when I went uh, for the last time back to my office and I realized that I need to pull out everything out of my office that I was going to need to finish up the semester because I wouldn't be coming back to that office Mm -hmm. or my colleagues for some time to come. So Mm -hmm. that was sort of the the moment where it said, yep, this is real now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would that have been maybe March 13th? Something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah we're finding that yeah. we're, we're finding that a lot of folks are looking at that week right after spring break at some right. point. That would have been it. Yeah. 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 For me, it was right around that same time. I think it was March 11th was the first day I started to become upset about it. I knew something strange was happening. And then similar story when I, when I left my office for the last time, it was horrible. It was a terrible feeling because I love that. I love our campus. I love my colleagues. It's a really special place, you know, so I can relate. How did you communicate the change in platform? Uh, and, and now we're learning more about changes in grading structure. So how are you initially communicating those changes and those announcements to your students? Well, first off, uh, most of my classes actually continued in a way over spring break. Uh, I still logged on because I'd already been doing for about a year, uh, basically distance learning. So the students at least half my class was always coming in remotely. We're used to doing that. So uh, I just kept the same hours, uh, didn't require any uh, submissions or anything, but I was there uh, in case they wanted to log in just to see what was going on and everything. Uh, I think the biggest difference was the CS105 class that I teach, which is basically the introduction to technology and I think that's been the most difficult for some of my students to adapt to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I uh, hope that answers the question. 
Yeah. Did you mostly use our Canvas learning management platform? Did you send direct emails? Did you text them? Anything in particular? Well, of course, I would use Canvas, uh, put up an announcement in Canvas. Uh, I could message them as well. Uh, and I wasn't too concerned about not getting feedback from students until really spring break was officially over, but I always put up announcements, make sure they understood, uh, they knew where the resources were, because we were constantly getting emails saying, you know, we have these resources available for students, uh, the writing center's gone online, uh, there's advisement online and such, so I want to make sure that I kept them up to date on that, mm -hmm. and then uh, when, uh, certainly for the uh, my IT classes, my Linux classes and such, that was really no problem for them. They they would sort of connect it all the time. And uh, so when we came back officially, well, it was just business as usual for that class mostly. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Have you been trying out any new tools, uh, new resources or platforms online? So uh, I've attended a couple really good webinars, and there was one the other day put on by Amazon Web Services, Teaching Online, 10 Suggestions for Success. And this was a uh, professor at uh, UCLA. And uh, really good suggestions, uh, and I've been thinking a lot about that. And of course, uh, I should mention that I'm fifth year probationary faculty and just turned in my IDP last Friday, which is the document we need to create so that uh, the committee can see what we've been doing and if we've been, if we, if they want to bring us back next year. So a lot of the online, a lot of the new strategies were part of that document as well. I realize one thing I need to do is uh, since the material that I teach is very technical, it can be rather dry, and I think I'm basically a text-based person. I mean, I was into computers before they even had monitors, let alone in color. And so I need to put a little more fun into it. I need to put in a little more variety. So I'm definitely looking at things like Kahoot uh, and uh, Nearpod. Uh, one of the uh, references in the webinar, and I can put up a link, give you a link to that later, is Discovering Education. And they have just a, a ton of uh, research-based uh, strategies for uh, online instruction and just uh, improving student engagement. So I can see that's going to be something I really need to do. And let me just mention the very first thing that uh, was mentioned in the webinar, and I think it's something we all need to really be thinking about, is that online is the new normal. Regardless of what happens in the future, we will be teaching online, our students will be learning online. And even without the present situation, if you look at all the opportunities that students have to learn online, you can get a degree from ASU online. So it's something we need to be good at, something we need to promote. Uh, we need to add value. Uh, it really sort of builds into how I've always thought of myself as basically being grease on the rails, meaning that if I can't make it easy for my students to learn the material, to find what they need to be doing, uh, to lower their frustration level, then I'm not really earning my salary, am I? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. I'm curious because I've been looking at this 
pandemic from the perspective of a teacher, but also a historian. And I'm always curious about our colleagues who teach other things, science, um, you know, philosophy, um, and in, in your case, IT. So from your expertise as both a teacher and a practitioner of online excellence, what are your observations about this era and in time? So if we go back to the days of the ARPANET, 1970s, let's say, when uh, the basic structure of the internet was created, the technology behind it, uh, the, the gears and the wheels and everything, they of course could never envision what we're using it for today and could never envision the amount of people that would be connected in this way. Uh, the fact that it stood up, the fact that it served us very well is really quite amazing. Uh, and you mentioned history. That actually was my major in college, too. Um, and it just, you look back at the technology back in those days, we literally, in the palm of our hands, have more computing power than existed in the entire world by many, many times. Uh, so I think, in a way, we're fortunate to have this as a resource. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I have to, I, I'm, I'm smiling because I watched a, a 1958 sci-fi movie the other night, a War of the Satellites. And here's the plot. Man is starting just to explore outer space. And the alien beings have decided they don't want man in outer space. He's not ready for it. They want to quarantine man on his own planet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so maybe that's what's happening. I don't know. <laughs> oh, goodness. I hope not. But I, right. there's something to that, right? I think so many of us are very suspicious. Like, what are we doing to ourselves? This yeah, is terrible. Yeah. Yeah, what can we believe? And that, that's thing, the other thing I think we have an issue with. What, what can we believe? Who do we listen to? I know. It's such a challenge. Dennis, what are you doing in your own day-to-day -to, -day to establish a sense of normalcy? I have Alexa wake me up at 6 a.m. First off. <laughs> that's it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I do have a class at 7 on Monday and Wednesday, 7.30 on Monday and Wednesday. So I have her wake me up. Um, I usually try to plan out my day um, a little bit. Uh, here are the things I want to accomplish today. Um, and try to set aside some set times as much as I can for doing certain things to try to keep a pattern. Mm -hmm. Would you give that same advice to your students who are feeling a little bit distracted or unfocused right now? Oh, yeah. And, in fact, one of the things I do is I introduce my students to uh, something called the Pomodora technique. Uh, Pomodoro is Italian for tomato. It's called that because it's based on a simple kitchen timer that was in the shape of a tomato. So the idea is that you outline a block of time that I'm going to work on this class right now, and I'm going to do it for just 25 minutes. You set your timer for 25 minutes. No Facebook, no phones. Uh, you focus on that for 25 minutes, and then after 25 minutes, you give yourself a short break. If you need to come back, then you do it for another 25 minutes. When you've done that two or three times, then you get up, 
have a much longer break and take care of those things. You know, those people that called you or, you know, somebody's that uh, need your tent sake, I can't do it right now, but in 25 minutes, I'll get back to you. Mm-hmm. So I think it helps you focus on things and uh, eliminates a lot of distractions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those of us who are academic uh, writers, we use that a lot, right? We give ourselves the kitchen timer technique where we yeah. say, I'm going to write for an hour and I can't do anything else. And it can really help to have an accountability structure as well. You, you know, text a friend or email someone and say, I'm going on my hour. Don't let me, you know, then you, then you have to check in. It can help that way as well. Right, yeah, because if you don't, you end up with Friday and looking at all the things you didn't get accomplished that week. I know. <laughs> yeah, so true. Um, what is, do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that feels kind of pertinent right now? Uh, I can't think of one right off of my, my head. Um, but, um, I would say just stay positive. Um, take it one day at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would, I'd say, leave it at that. And, and, okay, I would say one other thing that I'm really trying to do more than I've done in the past, and I think that's important, is I'm trying to make a personal connection with my students uh, because the online can be intimidating. I want to make sure that when I text a student that uh, I'm, I'm not criticizing them. I'm, I'm, you know, there to help them. Uh, I want them to know that... Uh, they can come to me if, uh, if they have some issues with the class. Uh, another thing I do in my classes, which I think seems to surprise students, is even though I have due dates, and I do that to try to keep them on track, I accept late work, late assignments. I don't take off any points because I believe just as Saul Khan of the Khan Academy says, we want to teach to mastery. We don't want to say, okay, we're doing this for this week, and then if you haven't got it by Thursday of this week, forget it, we're going to move on. And the example that he gives is, let's say that you're having a house built. The foundation has just been poured, and the city inspector is there, and he's looking at it and says, well, it's still a bit wet in this corner here. I can see some issues with the plumbing over in that corner, but it's 80% complete. Go ahead and put on the first floor. Well, that just doesn't work. Uh, so I really want my students t- to take the time. I know life gets in the way. Sometimes they procrastinate. I do try to keep up with them if they've been a week or two behind on assignments. I'm definitely uh, reaching out to them and say, hey, how can I help you? Do you want to get together for an hour here? We could work on a couple of these uh, so they don't get too behind. I'm afraid if I would cut off and say, nope, no late assignments. Sorry, you missed out on that then they've lost the incentive really to continue on the courses. Obviously, I can't get this stuff. I might as well just quit right now, but I don't want to do that. I wouldn't stick it in there because we've all seen it in students. It takes it some time for some of them, but all of a sudden, all of their eyes just sort of light up and, hey, I'm getting this now. This is starting to make sense, and, and that's always a great moment, isn't it? Oh, it is. And what a great suggestion, especially right now uh, with our students. I'm thinking about so many of our students who are actually working more hours now because they're perhaps working at the grocery store or at the Dollar Tree and they're labeled as essential. So all of a sudden, they went from having 13 hours a week to now working 45 hours a week. 
And so their their calendars are all out of whack. They have family to take care of, kids uh, that are not in school. So yes, it's uh. a great suggestion. Thank you for that. Uh, here's a question for you. If this is a podcast and a blog that is really designed for teachers and students of all ages and genres and expertise areas um, to really feel like they're not alone in this experience, um, but to also share their thoughts and discoveries with each other. So my question for you is if you stumbled across this blog or if you stumbled into an episode of this podcast, what would you be looking for? Um, What would you want to hear from teachers and students across the country? So I definitely like to know some of the ways that they're using things, uh, uh, what tools they're using, because maybe they're using tools to say, hey, I've been thinking about that. You know, tell me more about it. How is that working in your class? and also just to know that they're running into the same issues that I'm running into so that, you know, we're not alone in this. So. For sure. Yeah. Are there any specific issues that you keep coming up against that you're trying to work your way through? Just my own procrastination a lot of times. Uh, making sure that I have things up on Canvas uh, complete. I think one of the issues, and this goes back to, uh, Eric Mazur, he's a, a physics teacher at Harvard, and uh, he's the one who originally uh, came up with the idea of flipping the classroom, and the way he discovered it, he was trying to explain a concept in physics to his students, and he thought he was doing an excellent explanation. He was just, just off the, the wall, the, great, the greatest thing he'd ever done. He'd turn around, and the students just didn't get it. And he couldn't understand why they didn't get it. So out of desperation, he simply says, okay, you just talk among yourselves, and then we'll come back to this. And what he discovered is that Susie could explain it to John much better than old Professor Mazur, because Susie just learned it. Professor Mazur, it was so obvious that he couldn't see it from a beginner's perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and we're all kind of beginners in one way or another right now. And in several ways, our students are learning things ahead of us. Yeah. We're all learning at the same time, but maybe on different aspects we're we're growing. And and I tend to be very big on basics. And one of the reasons is from my own past experience. So high school, I was very interested in aviation, airplanes. Mm -hmm. I even spent a summer working at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. I learned how to fly before I learned how to drive. But my first flight instructor, really, he was only interested in how many hours could he keep me up in the air so he could build up his time. And so we'd land. I've had trouble pacing, uh, parking the tri-pacer. We didn't spend the time to get over that and, and resolve that issue. We just went on about other things. And, and that was really frustrating for me because – there was there was a hole in my learning right there, and it wasn't being fulfilled. So, uh, again, being able to cover the basics, make sure that uh, that and and again, we come from the perspective that we know it a lot better. We've been teaching it for years, so things are obvious to us that are completely foreign to our students. Uh, and it's it's really important. In fact, I keep a log of that kind of stuff whenever something else comes up. Uh, that I realized, oh, they don't know that when I say to press control 
D, we're holding down the control D and pressing D, they think they're typing that out. So yeah. I need to remind myself this is a point that needs to be covered at some point so that uh, uh, they can get beyond that frustration, which can easily eat up all of their study time. Isn't that true? And some of those nuances that we take for granted in our own fields, for example, I always have to remind myself that my students simply may not know that 20th century applies to 1900s, right? That's just like a concept that historians just take for granted. Because they weren't born in the 20th century. <laughs> but they, I'll say like 18th century, whatever, and they think 1800s. Yeah. And it's, it's a good reminder for me constantly that I didn't learn those titles for centuries until I myself was in college. Why would they know that unless they happen to have a history teacher that taught it, which you can't rely on those things. But And isn't it wonderful I, that we can go back and relive some of that history via newsreels and other things yeah. that are now online? It just, just amazes me. Yes, and I have to plug our district library system because the amount of content we have available for free through the Maricopa Community College district libraries, it's just awesome. And, and I'm able to migrate most of my classes can use library resources right. in textbook now, which is just unheard of. It's so cool. There's another great resource, which, which I support financially, called the Internet Archive in San Francisco. And yeah. the purpose of uh, Brewster Kale, his purpose there is to really archive everything that's going on digitally, and not only digitally, but uh, books as well. They have a great system. They've uh, scanned more than 11 million books uh, they have things like the Prellinger archive. So, the, so Richard Prellinger collected all of those films that we remember seeing in high school that nobody ever cared about. Uh, so an example would be a promotional film in the 1950s by Coca-Cola on how to act when going to your first prom. <laughs> so it would show us aspects of society back then that uh, that – we just, you know, would would never know. Mm. Um, so it, it and it's it, just some wonderful stuff. What a cool suggestion! Thank you for that. I only have two more questions for you. The first, um, it sounds a little simple, but it's relatively intense. What are you hoping for when you look into the future, and what are your fears? What are you worried about? Uh Boy, I am so grateful every day for being able to teach. Uh, this wasn't what I went to college for. Uh, medieval German literature doesn't have a lot of uses today. Probably didn't <laughs> back then. Uh, and I spent a lot of years in an industry that was changed dramatically by uh, the digital revolution. Uh, and it's one thing I want to tell my students is that uh, – you are going to be lifelong learners because you're going to have many, many careers in your life. Um, and what you end up doing 20 years from now will probably be a far cry for what you're studying for today. Uh, I just want to keep on doing what I'm doing. Um, I, I'm really grateful that college professors and symphony orchestra conductors could basically work as long as they want. We expect to be rather uh, over the hill a bit. So uh, <laughs> uh, I'm fortunate that I, I don't, I don't tend to worry about the future because that's not something I can 
directly influenced. Well, it, I take that back because uh, thinking about uh, George O'Keefe, she, she realized that all the decisions she made at every point of her life did affect the future. But I can't mm-hmm. really worry too much about it. I need to be trying what I can be doing today, uh, how I can put myself in the best possible position for whatever comes up in the future. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. My last question for you is uh, regarding plugs. So this is a chance where you get to tell others where they can reach you if you want them to. You can share your social media or your email address or website. And if you'd prefer to not, then instead tell us about a favorite book or movie that you've been able to watch or reference during the quarantine. Well, uh, they're certainly welcome to get in touch with me. Uh, the easiest way is to go to the basiscc.edu webpage, click on the contact link at the top of the page. My last name is spelled K-I-B-B-E, and even if you don't remember that, Dennis is spelled with two N's, and you'll find me there. And uh, you can email me at the faculty address if you, if you like. Great. And have you been watching anything uh, or reading anything in particularly interesting? Uh, boy, I've got so many things on my reading list. Um, and one of the things I need to do is I think I need to uh, I need to catch up on some of the things that I've had on my bookshelf that uh, I haven't. I'll plug one book. Right. Uh, and it's a book that I mentioned to my students. So First off, if you're familiar with, familiar with the movie The Secret, then this is the book that inspired the movie. And the book was written in 1910 by Wallace Waddles, and it's called The Science of Getting Rich. Mm-hmm. And I think what makes this book uh, so uh, important is that he sits down and disperses the, the myth that making money is bad, that if you're making money, you're taking food out of the mouths of others. And he basically says that it is your duty to make as much money as you can, because only then can you support the, the people that you want, the ones you love. You can support the causes that you care about. And you're not taking anything away from anyone else, because the universe will make it abundant for you. I also recommend Steve Harvey, if you listen to some of his motivational speeches. He came out of nothing, and it's just a great story because uh, the law of attraction, as anybody who's practiced it and anybody who's benefited from it absolutely knows it's work. it works. It's not for us to determine how things can be done. We just need to pick a gold and focus ourselves on that gold, and things will just fall in place. Wow, great. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for giving of your time and expertise this afternoon. I've loved, I've loved meeting you and touching base with you. <laughs> and it's been a pleasure, Summer. I've had a great time. You can find us at SouthPhoenixOralHistory.com. Send us an email at HistorySouthMountain at gmail.com, or find us on social media at SMCC History. Music provided by Jake and Emily Speck.